This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Dr. Henry Grayson. Henry Grayson received his degree from Boston University and a postdoctoral certificate in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy from the Postgraduate Center for Mental Health in New York City. He's the founder and chairman emeritus of the Board of Trustees of the National Institute for the Psychotherapies in New York. He also founded and is the director of the Institute for Spirituality, Science, and Psychotherapy, and is the founder and past president of the Association for Spirituality and Psychotherapy, a national membership organization. Henry Grayson's the author of Mindful Loving, 10 Practices for Creating Deeper Connections. And with Sounds True, he's created a nine-session audio series called The New Physics of Love, and also a new book called Your Power to Heal. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Henry and I talked about his personal journey with health challenges and how he learned to uncover hidden causes and beliefs that relate to an illness. We also talked about overcoming what Henry calls family downloads, how they affect our health, and why so many of us seem to be attached to our suffering. Henry also took us through a checklist of seven questions that he asks whenever a symptom is present and he led us through a practice of releasing unconscious beliefs in order to catalyze our own self-healing power. Here's my conversation with Dr. Henry Grayson. Henry, I'm so happy to have this chance to speak with you about your new book, Your Power to Heal. Some of the focus of the book is about how we get at the unconscious beliefs and the family downloads we may have received that are actually operating to affect our health. And I want to begin by talking about the idea that we can intentionally approach understanding what's in our unconscious. Because, of course, if it's unconscious, how do we get to it? How do we discover it? Well, that's a very relevant question because it is true, according to most of the studies, that up to 95% of all of our behaviors are not conscious. And that's the good news and the bad news. And it's the good news because we don't have to think about every syllable we formulate when we speak. A jazz pianist doesn't think at all. His fingers just run on the keyboard and so on. But on the other hand, there are a lot of the negative things that are unconscious too and that uh, are there from childhood and they uh, are interfering. And so I find that there's a variety of tools we can use to access that. 
And um, uh, one of them is, uh, that I find is very useful is some muscle testing from applied kinesiology. And it seems to access that inner knowingness about whether this trauma I had with my father at age seven or uh, ongoing deprivations in my family or a recent trauma of some kind or some negative belief system that I have, and to discover that uh, on a scale of zero to ten, how much is that affecting the symptom I have right now? And I find that's a way that uh, invariably can uh, take us to it. Well, in addition to that, though, in, the, in this book, though, I give some other tools that people can use as well. Like there's a self-awareness questionnaire that one goes through that with real honesty and curiosity. It's amazing how things will come to the surface that have not been conscious or a pattern or a trend or going through the list of uh, traumas that we may have had, childhood or adult are going through the negative beliefs that we, we carry, and uh, that list as well. All of those can kind of help us access what's in our unconscious mind. So I'm, I'm always looking for some way that we can access what's there so that that unconscious part does not rule us, but we take our power back to be in charge. Now, you began by talking about muscle testing. And, you know, I think muscle testing in some ways is controversial. And I'm, I'm curious what your views are on that. I mean, is, sure. it, is it really a reliable tool or is it just some way that you kind of find out what you're thinking, that you sort of know you're thinking, but you don't want to admit you're thinking? I mean, is it really an accurate tool? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Tammy, because it's, the answer is yes and no. Both, because I think a large part of it depends on how it's used. I see a lot of people using it where they just press very quickly and gently on your hand and you can hardly feel a difference and they constantly draw conclusions from it and uh, the person himself or herself doesn't feel like it comes from within. I don't trust that particular method very much myself. On the other hand, there's a wonderful line that I like from one psycho-spiritual work that many people may know about called A Course of Miracles that says, when two minds are joined together in the search for truth, the ego cannot prevail. And I find that's a key that makes a difference. Like if I and the other person who's with me really sincerely want to find the answer to this, does that trauma I had at age seven really affect this problem? Or does that upsetting experience over the last six months in my job or with my wife or whoever it might be, does that, does that stress going into my body right now? Well, if the, if the intent of both of us, me and the other person, is to really just know the truth about that, I find that's when it really seems to be trustworthy. And then it gets amplified, uh, that worthiness, after the work we do. Because if we did, uh, believe what that muscle testing said, then we do the clearing based on it. And then we find the result is there. It makes a difference. We find then it's no longer a 10, it's a 0, that uh, what is there. And that's verified or you know, confirmed in the fact that the symptom is no longer there. Now, Henry, you're talking really here about a new field. These techniques are part of a new field that we could call energy psychology. Do you think that's fair, mm -hmm. first of all? And how, how did, included, yes. Yeah, included. And, t and tell our listeners how you became introduced to energy psychology after being a more traditional psychotherapist, if you will. Yes, I was traditional, originally trained in psychoanalysis, but then I realized it didn't have all the answers, but, though there were many very good parts. 
And I began to get training from even when I was still studying psychoanalysis and other modalities. So I've always been very curious as to what will help people change and grow and deepen in their lives and be free of symptoms and be free of pain and suffering of all kinds, as long as it was legal and ethical and had no harmful side effects. So I've always explored various modalities. So that's a bottom line piece. Then there was one time back in the 90s, I guess it was, uh, I got a brochure in the mail about a seminar uh, on a, about a system called thought field therapy. I'd never heard of it before, but I was captivated by those words, thought and field and therapy, because I long since come to believe that our thoughts are very powerful and they have immense effects on our cells. All seven to 80 trillion cells listen to every thought we think. And our mind is non-local. I'd studied quantum physics with uh, David, physicist David Bohm, who was a major influence in my life. And he helped me see the, the oneness of everything. His book, Wholeness and Implicate Order, writes about that. And so when I think about the field, I think of quantum physics. And when I thought about thought that was in that title, that engaged me too. And I thought, well, how do those get together in therapy? So I signed up for that, to attend that workshop. And that's when I learned about the first of the energy psychology methods called thought field therapy that was developed by a psychologist out in California uh, named Roger Callahan. And um, he had been curious about uh, uh, the Eastern systems of thought and especially acupuncture and had gone and gotten some training in it. And he thought, boy, we could probably use this as therapists, but we can't stick needles in people. And he thought, well, how can I do this? Well, what he realized, too, from his learning is uh, the ancient system of acupuncture, they see energy meridians running through the body, and each one of those meridians is attached to a different bodily organ. And they believe that uh, if you stimulated that meridian, the negative energy in that, uh, in that meridian would be deactivated and the positive would replace it. And so Callahan thought, gee, we can't, we can't, how do we do that? We can't use needles. He said, I wonder if it would happen if we tap on it. You know, and then later we've come to see we can also just place our fingers on it or we can massage it, those acupressure points. Now, we used to think that the Chinese people had sort of just made up the idea of the energy meridians. Now, with the newer technology, they can be photographed, so we know that they're actually there. Uh, but uh, that was my introduction to it, and I went away from that seminar just really quite fascinated. Boy, here's a whole world of other potentiality, you know, and possibilities. And so that led me to just start learning more about the different ones that were emerging. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the premise of your new book, Your Power to Heal, is that we can actually uncover these unconscious beliefs that are affecting our health mm -hmm. and clear them. And, you know, this is a, a very bold uh, premise, if you will. I mean, one of the endorsers of the book, Harvel Hendricks, said... Mm -hmm. This book, Your Power to Heal, is a very challenging book. It challenges mm -hmm. the reader to actually really go in to these interior unconscious patterns and see how they might be affecting our health. So I'd love to know how you have worked with this approach in your own life and the results that you have or haven't gotten as you've applied these techniques. Well, actually, I found some way my first experience of doing the self-healing occurred way back before I even learned of these techniques. I was in graduate school in, in Massachusetts at Boston University, 
And for some reason, I'd gotten a little interested in mind-body connection, and I don't know where I'd heard about it, but there weren't many courses taught in the program at that point. In fact, none in the program itself. So I talked to a professor into doing a directed study so I could uh, research all the research studies that were there and write a paper about it, and he would oversee that. And at that point, the conclusions were that there were maybe four or five things in the body that were kind of mind-body related. It might be skin disorders, asthma, some digestive problems, uh, just a few, three or four things. And I remember as I, uh, as I was studying that, I thought, gee, that's really amazing to have some, that verification. But I began to have the question, well, how could it be that the mind can affect some parts of the body and not others? That doesn't make sense. I almost felt like saying the feeling, duh, you know, it just didn't make sense to me. And so, anyway, uh, I was out there and had a dog that was getting out of the fence where I lived, and it was a cold, wintry day, and I needed to repair that fence. It was snowing like crazy. It was 20-mile-an-hour wind. It was probably 10, 12 degrees. And I was out working away, repairing that fence, and I started to get a sore throat. That terrified me because I'd been getting sore throats and horrible colds for the last 10 years, from age 15 to 25. Um, and uh, they always were very debilitating. And uh, here, and it always started as a sore throat. And here I was out in the yard doing this repair of the fence for my dog, and I started to get the sore throat. The part that really upset me most is I had comprehensive exams coming up on Monday. And I knew it would interfere with that. And I'd been giving up weekends and preparation and so on, and I wanted to be done with it. And so then I suddenly remembered what I'd been studying about, gee, it could affect some parts of the body. And I would think, well, I've already concluded it shouldn't be, it couldn't be constricted to just certain parts and not others. So I began to ask myself some questions, you know, well, why might I need this? And I thought, oh, what would he get from me? Or what would he get me out of doing? And with that thought, I thought, gee, is he wanting to get me out of taking that exam? And then I realized, as I was saying before, I'd spent weekends for a couple of months working on it. I wanted to be free so I could have family time and downtime and time with friends on weekends now. And so I thought, it's not that. No, I'm eager to get it over with on Monday, and I'm 95% prepared. And so I went to ask the next question. And I said, is there, is there some emotion being expressed in it? And then suddenly I saw my neighbor standing over her sink in the kitchen window, which overlooked my backyard. And I felt a big pang of guilt. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm onto something here. And uh, I thought, why in the world would I be feeling guilty? I've not done anything to her or her father she takes care of. But then I, something else clicked in my mind. I thought she was standing there. This was my projection because I have no idea what she was thinking. But I stood there, seeing her out of the window, that she's seeing me out in the yard doing work for my dog in this horrible weather when I had not yet done what I was going to do for her father, aged father she took care of. Well, I knew I wasn't trying to get out of that because I was going to do it the day after uh, I'd taken exams. And when I make a commitment, I always keep my word, always have. So I knew I wasn't trying to get out of that. But I projected onto her that that's what she was thinking. Of course, I have no idea if she even saw me or what she was thinking. And that was my first experience of realizing how much all of us human beings project all the time. It's outrageous how much we do. But anyway, uh, so I thought, well, how would I prefer to deal with this guilt rather than getting sick? 
And I thought, well, as simple as this, I know I've not done anything, you know, I've not broken my word, but just to confirm it in my own mind, when I finish doing this work, I'll go inside and pick up the phone and give her a call and say, just wanted you to know I haven't forgotten your father, I'm taking comps on Monday, and I'll be over on Tuesday to take care of it. And, you know, once I made that commitment and I withdrew the feeling of guilt, I started to get better. And within a half hour, my sore throat was gone. And I thought, wow. And the most amazing part was I've never had a, a big a cold or sore throat since. And that's been decades. Why? Because if I get the first little tickling in the throat or the first bit of sniffles, I start to ask myself those questions. And I've added to them now other questions as well. But if I get that and explore it sincerely and get the answer to it, then I find an alternate way of dealing with that. I find I have no longer a need for the symptom. And so what I've concluded, as long as we have a need for a symptom at some level, usually unconscious, the symptom will persist. But if I can identify what it is, which I've done numerous times, and I've helped others to do it far, far even more times since I work with a lot of people, and they deal with it in a different way, then the symptom is no longer needed, and it seems to just not be there. So that's why I think of their symptoms not to be thought of as an illness that happens to me because this power of the world is outside me and it's doing to me. But we need to recognize our true identity, that we're a part of the all that is, part of the unified field, as it's called in quantum physics. We're part of what in spiritual systems we call God or spirit, and we're part of that higher consciousness, whatever name you can get put onto it. But we disown it so much of the time, and we think everything's happening to us rather than seeing and participating in the creation of it. And so that was the beginning, Tammy, of my getting into this kind of thing. And then the most dramatic part was some 15 years more later, I forgot to actually even think I could use it for any other symptoms other than just colds and sore throats. But then I got serious back trouble when I was in my 30s. And it was got to the point it was extremely debilitating. And I could, uh, got to the place where I couldn't even move a centimeter in the bed without feeling like I was being jabbed with an ice pick and shocked with an electrode. And the doctors had said I had such a severely degenerated disc that I probably wouldn't walk again without back surgery. Well, I knew I didn't want that because at that point, it's not as effective as today. At that time, 68% of the time, you're worse off afterward. And I thought, duh, do I want to risk being even worse off and going through the horrible process for that? Then suddenly I remembered the questions I asked myself about the cold and how it could work. And that was the thing that really turned the balance, tipped the balance for me. Because when I thought of that, I started asking myself those questions and I added a couple of more to it. You know, why might I need it? What would it get from me? What would it get me out of? What emotion is being expressed in it? And, and so on. And I've added to that since then what metaphor might be there or what traumas are not cleared or what download from parents could be there. But anyway, I came up with four answers of things I needed to deal with differently. Two of them were lifestyle changes that were not healthy which I made a vow to myself I would certainly attend to. And the other two were people in relationship issues that I had held dealt with, one friend and one colleague I had issues with, that I made a firm commitment rather than letting it just side by and we just kind of, uh, you know, not deal with it directly. Exactly how I would do that as soon as I could get to them and sit down and talk about it. Once I made that commitment that I knew I absolutely would keep, not just saying, saying the words, but one I knew I would keep, 
my back started to feel better. And within a few days, I was back at work. Two months later, I was skiing out in your territory in Colorado. And, uh, and, that, and I was feeling better and better all the while. And then a few years later, when I went, went to my routine uh, physical, which I do every three or four years, not to go to find out what's wrong, but to kind of prove to myself how healthy I am, because I think that mental state makes a difference too. But anyway, I was, the doctor insisted on taking a chest x-ray, and I said, I know my lungs are healthy. He said, I uh, said, because in my, I breathe fine. I've always done a lot of breathing exercises. And he says, but, yeah, the radiation's not so bad anymore. I've got new equipment and it's less. So he talked me into it. Now I'm glad he did because he came back out afterwards saying, Henry, your, leg, your, your lungs are fine. And I thought, yes, I knew that, but I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that confirmation. Then he started to stammer, but, 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 but that, 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 that disc of yours. And I thought he was about to say something negative, and it frightened me for a moment. And then he said, no, it's a miracle. Then, of course, I knew it wasn't fearful. He says, that, that disc is totally restored. That's not supposed to happen. That was the one that convinced me. But what it made me aware of here, how I'd known a tool to use since I was doing that thing with my, my coals decades before. But the ego mind that we all have in us as human beings would not let me take that learning and transfer it to anything else and use it. And that's the ego mind that always tries to deceive us and keep us into pain and suffering and to keep us away from health and happiness and joy and peace and success and everything else. It's the voice that just speaks loudest and first all the time. And so anyway, I realized I'd let that voice rule. And that became to be, uh, to be actually a very critical changing point in my whole life. And of course, these two things sparked off this whole system that's behind this book that uh, I learned from my own experience one little thing like coals, but well, horrible ones and repetitive, and a bigger one like a back where I might not walk again, and a degenerated disc, and to find that my thoughts could override that degenerated disc and it could regenerate. And what I learned to confirm that is I studied quantum physics with David Bohm, and then as I read many books since and studied about others, I've learned that from this new science, it's not matter that rules in the universe, but it's consciousness. Consciousness rules over matter, not the other way around, though most of us think it's the other way. And as long as we believe the other way, we feel like powerless victims of whatever in our lives. Once we shift the other way, we see the power of our consciousness, you know, and how that works. And that same thing was been voiced throughout spiritual traditions from way, way back. And now the new science of the last hundred years is corroborating that. You know, like uh, in spiritual wisdom, like Jesus said, uh, it's your, your faith that made you whole. No, I didn't heal you. No, it was your faith. That was your belief or whatever it is that made work for you. Or he said, you, if you have faith as much as a grain of mustard seed, you can say the mountain over there be moved in the sea and it'll be so. I always struggle with that one, but now as I study quantum physics, and I know what happens with atoms in the laboratory upstate New York where they first started experimenting with crushing an atom. You know, and we think you know, our bodies are full of atoms, and this desk in front of me is full of atoms, and so on. Well, uh, uh, what happens when they crush the atom? All they find is a spark of energy and information. There is no matter there. That's a very different worldview than we all live in. But it's a worldview that's been present for centuries in most spiritual systems. And now it's been present for 100 years in the new science of quantum physics. 
And so there's a whole world available to us that can lead us toward being in charge of our health and our happiness that we just never realized much before, most of us. It took me a long time to get it. Now, Henry, hearing those personal stories, it's very compelling, and I'm really glad that you shared them, especially the degenerative disc healing story. And I want to go in more to these seven questions and the process you've developed Mm -hmm. for people to work with when they have a symptom. But before we do, I have to ask you a question, because I've met, and you know, one of the things I appreciate about you, Henry, is that you are fine being challenged. It's no problem. You want to talk about these ideas in a very open way. So I just want to begin by saying I really appreciate that about you. Okay, so here's my question. I've met people who seem to me to be very evolved and free and who are really willing to do the deep inner work, and yet they still seem to have a physical challenge in their life. Some well, kind human, of aren't they? Yeah. And so help me understand... Even if somebody says, you know, I'm going to apply all these processes, do this work, and I still end up with lots of physical pain, let's say, does that mean I failed at really getting to the deep unconscious beliefs that are affecting my health? Or is it possible that there's some other kind of mystery going on in the universe that we don't always understand about illness? Well, I'd always want to be open to that possibility because I'm always curious to keep growing and learning. On the other hand, uh, I doubt that there's anybody, you know, here on earth that is perfect in this and that doing the self-healing and being aware of it. I know I'm not. I've done it many times. I've done it other times, too, in very dramatic ways that I could share, but that would maybe take up too much time here. But uh, uh, there are some times when I'm not. Like I wasn't able, for example, to get in touch with uh, what was going on with a hernia. So I had it repaired surgically. You know, or another time, uh, I could go, I, I won't, I could, there are various times when I've resorted to having some other kind of traditional medical intervention. Like I spent a lot of time in the sun when I was younger, water skiing and sailing and windsurfing and baked in the sun. Well, I've had two or three little uh, basal cells, you know, on my body. And I had one up on my nose next to my eye. And, uh, I thought, well, I could do maybe self-healing here, but it's so close to my brain and to my eye, I don't want to take the chance on waiting until I might get that worked out. So I had it surgically removed. And so what I'm saying is is that, and I've worked at this thing of self-healing, as you know, for decades. I'm still not perfect at it. There are things that I would miss or can't quite get to. More and more of the time I can get it. But I think no matter how experienced, or you use the word, even evolved, someone might be, they're still human. And we all in our human state uh, are not perfect in embracing fully our total intrinsic power. And we all have our blocks or barriers. And it's not to feel guilty about it, it's just to recognize that's part of the human condition. We're never to blame ourselves, like a lot of people won't look at, gee, I created this illness, oh, I must be a horrible person, and the ego mind wants to come in and have them feel guilty or blame themselves. No, that's never any good. The whole part is, if I've created something negative, I also have the power to use that same power to make the positive. That's the way we need to approach it, and just continue to be curious. And if we can't get to it, or if it's more life-threatening, by all means, use a medical intervention. Not to be like some of those extreme Christian scientists who let their baby die before they take a child to a doctor. 
You know, we're not talking about that kind of thing. We're thinking about letting ourselves embrace our power to transform our lives, whether it's success in business, whether it's in relationships, uh, whether it's in our thoughts and how they make us feel emotionally, or whether it's to do with physical symptoms. All of it is just embracing more of our power to realize I have more power and control than I think I have. I guess I'm thinking of not so much the person who says, you know, I tried these self-healing techniques, they didn't work, so I'm going to use a traditional medical intervention. I'm thinking of the person who's like tried everything. They went to all these different healers, whether they're, you know, alternative, integrative, or Western medical. They've mm-hmm. tried to do the self-healing work, and they still find themselves suffering in some mm-hmm. way. Well, I think there are two, at least two answers, maybe more to that. I think one is maybe they just, you know, when we are seeking from healers all to solve the problem, I'm not seeing my internal cause. I'm really counting on power to be outside myself. There's nothing wrong with our doing that. We've all done that, and there are times to do that. But it may mean that they've given more emphasis to seeking the cure as being outside rather than inside. That happens very commonly. And then, of course, there's another dimension, too, there that we don't really know all the things that we're here for. And when many spiritual traditions think of it as we're here, like in a university, as a place to learn and grow. And we have our challenges, and those are all things for us to learn from. Or people who believe in past lives believe we bring things in there, and that we're replaying that here, and we need to get in touch with it. So it's so complex. Who knows which, for somebody like the people you're talking about, uh, where that source might be. I just think of it myself as I just need to keep, keep being curious and do everything I can and not blame myself if I can't. And, uh, and if it's some level, I think it's some, maybe I, it's my time to pass. I've done what I need to do in my body. Okay, maybe this symptom will help me across there. That may be what I'll feel someday. And that may be for others. You know, and I, I think of people like you've talked about who are very evolved spiritually but have um, died from some serious kind of thing. I'm not here to judge them, but I'm here to just say, well, they may or may not have been able to get to what it was about. Or maybe there was some other purpose in their, the university learning they signed up for. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Okay, I feel satisfied by that. Thank you, Henry, for addressing that potential mystery in the self-healing process, if you will, that we can't be reductionistic about it, is what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah, and we may not be perfect at it. <laughs> you know, we just may need to do it as much as we can and gain a little more confidence as we do it, but that doesn't mean I've gotten perfect. Yeah. Now let's talk about our self-healing power, all the ways we can affect our health and understand what the psychological impacts might be from unconscious beliefs. First of all, you talk about unconscious beliefs in three different categories. I thought this was interesting. You talk about hidden beliefs we have, unresolved traumas, and then family downloads. And I thought it would be worthwhile for you just to say a bit about these three different types of unconscious beliefs that could be affecting our health. Well, I would not call them the three as actually three kinds of beliefs. I think of them as very different kind of components. I think okay. a belief is a conclusion I've made about something, about myself or about life, and I believe I'm no good or I believe I'm wonderful or I, I believe I can get this done or I don't, uh, you know, and, or my thoughts may carry that out, you know, and so on. 
but what you're referring to as a download, I don't think of that so much as a belief because I don't. Downloads are really just not conscious to most of us. There's an amazing example of that that uh, I like to keep in my mind to explain it. There was a German Shepherd dog I read about a few years ago who was pregnant and she was running across the street and got hit by a car. Well, she escaped with her life, but the car hit her hind legs and broke both of them. But it didn't damage the puppy she was carrying in her belly. And so uh, she, a few weeks later, gave birth to those puppies. And uh, she could only walk around by pulling herself with her front paws and dragging her hind legs. The puppies were totally healthy, but guess how they learned to walk? They pulled themselves with their front paws and dragged their hind legs behind them. And I thought, that's typical of those few two or three episodes that have been cited, one in Canada and one in Mexico, and I think one in the Far East about a baby that was found running, a child running with a pack of wolves, where a mother apparently had abandoned the baby in the woods. And it was brought up by the wolves, and that child was acting, running on all fours and making wolf sounds uh, when found. Those kind of things remind me of how what we call downloads. We all just download what's there from our parents without thinking about it. It doesn't even involve the thinking that would turn into a belief or a conclusion. We just do what's there. Like we learn a language. If we have a family that speaks two languages, we learn two from the very beginning, very easily, without even thinking about it. And uh, But if we don't know a second language and start anew and at age 16, I've got to work my butt off to try to get that second language. But the download is just what we naturally absorb. We do it about language. We do it about behaviors. It'll be about how to eat. Like we use our knives and forks here differently than some parts of Europe do, where they use a knife to scrape food up on the fork. Okay, that's a habit for people who are uh, British or some parts of the continent of Europe. Nothing's wrong with it either way. It's just it was a download. They saw their parents do it, and they copied it. And we do that with all sorts of things. We'll do it within if my parent often gets sick about something. If it's cold weather and they believe the cold weather made them sick, they'll get sick like the parents did. Or they believe that I'll have to get the same illness my father did or die from it at a certain age. I had a classmate in graduate school who did that. He thought he'd die from cancer like his father did at age 55, and I learned a few years ago that he'd done that. Uh, that belief was powerfully strong, but that's different from the download. Mm-hmm. The download is just the automatic kind of thing, the behavior that we, we soak up. And uh, like I think of one person who uh, got very allergic to all sorts of things outside. And we get allergic when playing sports and if it's springtime and the pollen is out. Well, I discovered from that person, when, from the time he was young, his mother was afraid of almost every kind of thing outside what might be happening, what the weather was like, whether he had on the right shoes, on the right clothing. She was obsessed by that and conveyed to him there's great danger in everything out there. Well, what is an allergy but a miscommunication in our immune system that says something is dangerous that's not to most people? It's just a miscommunication system, but he got programmed in somehow. You know, that we're, we're powerless and this cause is out there or the danger is out there. So that's the that's kind of thing that uh, we need to look at, again, not to blame ourselves, but to realize we just download it. And so we, one thing we can do is explore that in varieties of ways to see what downloads we might bring, what the parents did, what they didn't do, what they believed, how they acted, how they treated us. All of that can affect you know, what I just take in from them. 
And then that will also affect what I think and feel or what beliefs I may have. And then, of course, we know, too, that trauma plays a major role in illnesses, that uh, childhood, early childhood traumas, a lot of research supports how often people who had early childhood traumas get serious illnesses in their early 20s, a very common correlation between those two. Or we know that stress is reported in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine and other, I guess another one, American Medical Association Journal and so on, said that stress uh, contributes to at least 80% of uh, most physical symptoms. But what is stress? It's not so much what happens, it's how we think or interpret what happens, what meaning we give to it. And uh, if I give a meaning to it that's uh, disturbing, then I'm going to be all worked up and have adrenaline flow like crazy and cortisol flowing like crazy. And, of course, that's going to weaken my immune system. And my immune system's weakened, and illness is going to occur more. And so trauma, yes, plays a major role in the onset of illness. And uh, so we need to identify those, like we need to identify our beliefs that we carry. Uh, we need to identify the thought patterns that we have. We need to identify the downloads that we have and attend to them differently. And when we do that, we free up the energy for more health and happiness. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Henry, I'm imagining someone who's listening and is thinking of certain family downloads they've received or perhaps Mm -hmm. some early trauma in their life and is saying, you know, God, these things are so strong and entrenched. I don't know if I feel powerful enough to override them. They seem so to be so programmed in me already. How would you respond to that concern someone might be having? I'm so glad you raised that one, Tammy, because I think it's such a common response. Because we human beings, the two things we chase after most in the world are the two things we disown in ourselves most, love and power. We human beings chase after those as if both are outside and think everything and our person or this is what's going to give it to me when we have it all inside, but we, we all mostly disown so much of that. And so that's a key part, you know, of what's going on here, is that uh, we uh, don't embrace the power that we have, and we're afraid to do it. And if we start, like I said before, if we discover that I might have contributed to my illness, instead of saying, oh, I'm so glad, uh, like if you have some radioactive material in your house and you can't find it, and finally you find a little box in the back of a closet, there you rejoice about it. You don't beat yourself up for its being there, just you're glad you found it so you can get, out of the, get it out of the house. I think this is the same thing. The ego mind would have us to quickly blame ourselves or put ourselves down, and that, that way we just disown our power again. And we human beings do that incessantly. We disown so much of our power that we have, 
and see it as happening to us, happening to us. We're a victim of this. This person did this. That's what makes me unhappy. Not seeing, no, it's my interpretation of what that person did. For example, if somebody is critical of me all the time, I could be upset because, boy, she's always so critical. He's always putting me down. He's always critical. Or from a spiritual perspective, I could see, well, we know that whatever is not love is coming out of fear. A person is just uh, seeking for love in some way. If they're not giving it, the opposite, they're appealing for it in some way. What if I see them that way? If I see them that way, I embrace my own power of love and compassion in a process. My body gets stronger. They are probably affected in healthy ways by it. I see that all the time with people, how they affect others either either direction. And so uh, all of these are just ways of coming to realize that who we really are is one who has more more power than we think we have. And the more we can embrace it, the more we can use it. And the less we embrace it, the more powerless and victimized we feel, and the more depressed we feel, and the more anxious we feel, and the sicker we get. Now, Henry, I want to go into this a little bit more, because actually this is one of the quotes I pulled out of the book, Your Power to Heal. And the Mm -hmm. quote I pulled out is, is exactly what you're saying. Perhaps the two things we humans seek the most, love and power, are the two things we're also most frightened of because Mm -hmm. we have so much difficulty sustaining genuine ownership of them. So that's the quote Mm -hmm. that I pulled out. And what I want to know is why are we so frightened of our love and our power? That's a very good question. I don't know if I know or if anybody knows the precise answer to that. Uh, But but I know that we seem to get, uh, there's a lot of evidence and a lot of different people who are saying how we get so attached to our suffering. And that somehow we want to hold on to it. Like there was that Russian philosopher, Gurdjieff, said, you can call on human beings to make noble sacrifices for almost anywhere they cause, or, or you can ask them to give up almost any pleasure. He says, but just don't ask them to give up their suffering. And he was recognizing how attached we get to our pain and suffering. And uh, somehow that seems to be intrinsic to this human state, that we can get attached to things. The suffering, of course, is related to powerlessness. And we can get attached to that kind of identity. Maybe it's something we learn as kids, or maybe it's just the human state. I don't know. But uh, we can certainly get caught up in it. I find all the time a lot of people are frightened of embracing their power and just don't want to approach it. Uh, Like this one guy that came to me years ago who was actually a bright man, a dentist, and very successful, and started to talk about his symptom. We started to explore it a little bit more. He said, no, 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 I don't want to go into that. I just want to go to the doctor and have him fix it for me. And so what I could see in that, no, he's not ready to embrace his power and uh, get to the cause and to take back the reins to the wild horses, so to speak, of the mind. And it's a human state that we all have to deal with and never to feel guilty about it or blame ourselves for it, but just to recognize we have more potential than we think we have. We have more power than we think, and we don't have to keep disowning it. And, uh, but if we can begin to see through that, that that voice inside us, that ego voice that wants to think we're separate from the all that is, uh, that's the voice that keeps us into guilt or powerlessness and so on. And that's the voice that speaks over and over for every human being. That's why it's important to catch our thought patterns and to catch thoughts that are not affirming ourselves and uh, 
that are ones who are judging or putting ourselves down or feeling like we're powerless victims of whoever or whatever. If we can get past those thoughts, then we can be like Henry Ford's famous quote, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. Mm-hmm. And hence, we have the horseless carriage. <laughs> Let's go into this seven-step questioning process mm. that you teach people and that you work with yourself. If a symptom mm-hmm. is present and somebody wants to understand what's underneath this aspect of my physical health, some something's emerging, maybe it, it you know could be something serious or it could be a headache, but the seven-step mm-hmm. process. Can you take us through it? Sure. Well, the overall arching question, of course, underneath that's over the other questions is, uh, why might I need this? And that sets the tone for it, is to ask myself a question. Then the other questions are to help me break it down into some other part that's easier to explore. And like I was saying before, the first question after that would be, uh, what would he get for me? Well, for some people, uh, if I get sick, it might get me love and attention. Or it might uh, get somebody to, uh, to really be, uh, be present with me and stay with me. Or it might get me, uh, for somebody else, it might even it might get me criticism because they just got used to that. That's what was programmed in in their childhood. Or uh, we can go on and on as to what one might get from the symptom itself. Or then the second question is, what would it get me out of doing well, maybe I don't want to go on this trip to my in-laws this weekend, so I, if I get sick, I won't have to go. Or I'm so, I've been overworked. I've been not giving myself rest, so that will get me out of work. I, I can't just choose it consciously, but I can have the sickness, and that will give me, give me the excuse so I don't have to go to work. You know, Or it would get me out of uh, uh, doing something else that I don't want to do. Uh, or I think, for example... Uh, in terms of getting something for somebody, one common thing I found with a number of people who were diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis, that they had situations where as a child, they often did not get love and attention from their parents, except when they were sick. And so they got programmed in, I have to be sick and dysfunctional in order to get love and attention. And as long as that was programmed in, that would keep going. But I've seen as people are able to deal with releasing the trauma of not being, having being loved, but also find other ways they can engage people with loving interaction and attention. Not that I get it out of them, but the way I'm being that, that just naturally lets it flow. Then I find often those symptoms just go away. They're no longer needed anymore. And then, of course, after what would it get from me, what would it get me out of doing, is what emotions expressed in it. Like I found out in the yard that day that my emotion of guilt that came out of my projection onto this neighbor was there, and that was starting to create my illness that day of the sore throat, which would go into the cold. And uh, somebody else, it might be some other emotion. It might be fear. It might be anger, especially if somebody uh, feels like I can never show my anger. I'd be really beaten up or I'd be rejected or criticized, or I don't know how to show it in a constructive way, or when I've done it, it's created problems, or that anger can go right into the body. Or if it's a fear, if a person worries all the time, well, worry is always affecting the cells. I've often thought about writing a little book someday, even in terms of relationships, to say, write a book on, don't worry at me. 
because people confuse worry with love. We think we're worrying about somebody is helping them. No, it's the opposite. It's sending negative energy. It's harming the relationship and that person through the non-local mind. But if I can send love instead, it's a gift to myself and a gift to the other person, you know, and so on. And so uh, that has to do with the emotions then that can create uh, strength in the immune system or can weaken the immune system. And then another one might, what metaphor might be expressed in this symptom? There's another question. And uh, who's the pain in the neck? Or what's the back-breaking thing I'm carrying? Or what is it I don't want to see? Or what's heartbreaking to me? You know, and so on. And so if we can use those metaphors, that can sometimes take us to what something is about. And then uh, uh, going beyond that would be then, uh, is there some trauma that I've not cleared? And most of us are carrying multiple traumas we've never cleared because we aren't taught in school how to do that. Only a few places. I know there are two or three schools where I've taught teachers and parents how to use these, and they report that it makes such a difference for them. But that's not taught in school, which would probably help students a whole lot more than just uh, uh, excessive forms of math they never use. But if they were taught how they can clear traumas and painful experiences, okay, that reduces the cortisol and adrenaline flowing all the time and allows them to, allows the frontal lobes of the brain to be more intelligent and more creative. Wow, a simple thing like that, just reducing effects of stress and trauma, and this, it can have all these effects? Yes, much more health, much more intelligence, much more success, much more ease in learning. All of that can come from clearing those uh, traumas. And then another one would be to clear the negative beliefs. And what I've concluded about myself, because I wasn't loved consistently, well, must be something wrong with me. Because as little kids, we, we do that. The parents are the gods when we're little, so they must be right. And if they're upset with me, it must be something wrong with me. It must be my fault. And so we include such a belief like that. Or I'm no good at this, or I can't do that, or I'm not lovable, or nobody likes me. or Then whatever that belief is, we're going to attract confirmation of it, come hell or high water. Whatever I believe will be an outcome. I'm going to attract it like a strong magnetic force field. That happens repeatedly for people, emotionally, work-wise, as well as illnesses. And then, of course, the latter one there is the downloads, like we talked about before. That I, if my mother would get attention by being sick, I might even copy that. Or if my dad, you know... Uh, thought, okay, if I've been this way, then I always hurt my back. Yeah, okay, then I'll start doing the same thing. We'll download what's there. And that's the good news is we download all the positive things too, but we also download the negative ones without even thinking about it. And if we can clear that, and the tools that we have there that I'm presenting here in the book are tools we can use on ourselves or we can use them with our friends, we can use them with family members, and we can use them or train our family members to guide us through them or we join together and do joint clearings. All of those things uh, where we touch or tap on the meridians, uh, energy meridians, with the intention for releasing it. And to do two or three or four or five rounds of that around each issue, it's amazing how much we let it go. Because it's sort of like if we recognize uh, our brains are really work much like the computer. Because we think about it, the brain was a prototype of the computer. And our brains are actually even, your brain, Tammy, or mine, we have more power, control or more memory in it than the largest mainframe on Earth. 
Everybody does, not just us. But we forget that, and we think. Uh, but we think about how the computer works. We have to put in programs, and they stay there, and they make all sorts of outcomes for us. Sometimes it gets overloaded, and the computer gets jammed up, and it uh, breaks down. We have somebody go in and clean out some of the stuff in the computer, and the computer works well again. Okay, we can do the same thing because the brain was preceded the computer. And if I can use some of these tools and the power of intention, which is what rules over matter, uh, if I can use these tools with powerful intention to release it, then I can let go of some of that old programming. And now it doesn't mean it's all permanent, because nothing is permanent in the physical universe but change, said the old philosopher, Greek philosopher Paracelsus. But what we can do is treat it, I like to think of it as like what you do with the flower garden. First you pluck the weeds, then you plant the flowers. And then if you plant the flowers, some of the weeds are going to sprout up again now and then. Now what happens if I let them stay there? They multiply, and then they multiply. Then they can retake over the brain again, take over the flowers again. But on the other hand, if I plant my flowers in the springtime and some weeds come up, I pluck them out, and next week I pluck out some more. And the third week or fourth week, and not as many there, but I pluck those out, and by the fifth or sixth week, it's only an occasional weed that pops up. That is exactly the metaphor that we can use about our own brains. As we keep that kind of clearing and repetition of it, we get it cleared out so we can keep that negative stuff out, which weakens our immune response or attracts illness and can do much more to keep ourselves healthy more of the time. Okay, Henry, I think I followed the seven questions and really understood, I think, their implications, the depth of their implications, if people are willing to do the work of really asking those questions and seeing what the genuine mm -hmm. answers are. And I'm following the metaphors you're giving about clearing. I mean, I love the idea of thinking that I could, like, go inside myself and hit delete and just like i mean i hit delete on my computer that it would work you know and i realized i might have to delete again or even i'm willing to go get my hands dirty and get in the garden and you know pull the weed so i get the metaphors but can you give us right now an example of how we could clear something could we do something together for that person mm -hmm. who's who's not quite getting how they're going to actually do it in an effective way in their life so maybe somebody who's listening has identified some, let's just say it's a family download. They know they've got it, it's in them, and they know it's affecting negatively their health. They've got it. How could they clear that? Is there a simple well, technique? Very simple technique, which is spelled out in, in the book, uh, Your Power to Heal. And, uh, and so let's just look at it then uh, step by step. First of all, identify that, oh boy, I'm doing exactly what my mother did or my father did. I'm just copying that. I, I got it now. Now, I don't want to keep that, so how do I let it go? First of all, we want to clear our barriers to letting it go. And I find there's a very simple little process we can use that kind of gets rid of the interferences to clearing itself because if you've got a little stream and you want it to flow but it has some sticks or logs in there, the stream's not going to flow well until you get those out of the way. And so this little preparation helps the tool work better. And that would be a simple thing that I call the thymus heart rub. And you just bring your hand up over the upper chest and place it gently there on the upper chest. You're covering, as you move it in a clockwise position, looking off from the outside, soothingly with your hand flat there. 
So first of all, you're doing a loving gesture. And then you say to yourself these questions. Not these questions, but these statements. I deeply love and accept myself, even if I might think I don't deserve to be free of this download. And I deeply love and accept myself, even if I might think it's not safe to be free of this download. And I deeply love and accept myself, even if I think I'm not worthy of being free of this download. And I deeply love and accept myself, even if I'm afraid of letting go of this part of my old identity. I still love and accept myself. Okay, just that part is a good preparation because that kind of gets the sticks out of the stream so the stream can flow. And if we don't do that, sometimes there might be more resistance and to getting the tool to work. Then the, there's a variation, a common thing that people know now is the EFT, which Gary Craig made very popular, took the thought-feel therapy, simplified it into a simple process that people could use. And so that's more widely known now by most people. That's where you do some tapping on some acupressure points. I've modified that, and I find it even more helpful is to, instead of tapping on the acupressure point, you place your fingers there just firmly and hold them. And then take a V, be slow, be deep breaths. Now, why do we do the breathing? It's because it calms down the old limbic brain, the old survival brain. Uh, because it's the one that pours out the cortisol and adrenaline and, and the stress. And that's where all the stuff about danger and worry and fear and stuff get encoded in there. And so we want to calm that part down. And one way we do that is by deep diaphragmatic breathing. So I would suggest to people, exhale fully and completely. And then inhale totally and deeply into the belly. Then seeing if you can add a little bit more up into the chest. And then exhale totally and completely again. And then see if you can push out a little more. Not because you're trying to do it perfectly, but because I want to make room for a little bit more oxygen from my old survival brain. And just keep doing that. And then what I do is ask a person then while they continue that breathing, focus on that download that you're wanting to clear from your mother or your father or from both of them. That no, I don't want to keep that any longer. I didn't see it helping them. And I can see through it now. I don't want to keep it myself. It just makes me sick. So that's a download I want to clear. So will you hold your fingers up on the forehead, on the third eye, and focus on the memories or scenes that helped you create or that were part of that download. What you saw, what you experienced, what was all around you, let those scenes be very vivid and clear. And then with the thought that, yes, I want to be free of those, I'm ready to release them. Bring your fingers slightly over to the eyebrow next to the nose and say, I now release all fear related to this download and take a full deep breath, exhaling totally, inhaling deeply. And then say, I release all fear about letting it go too. And then exhale completely and inhale deeply. And then under the eye, and I release all anxiety related to this download. Exhale completely. Inhale deeply.
And as an aside, I just discovered in my eagerness to share this before the time's up, we skipped a spot on the outside edge of the eye. And as you place your fingers there, say, I release all anger, resentment, hatred, and rage related to this download. Exhale totally. Inhale deeply. And then you would come to the eye, under the eye as we just did. And then under the nose. And I release all embarrassment related to this download. Inhale fully and exhale completely. And then with the fingers under the bottom lip. And I release all shame and guilt related to this download. Exhale totally. And inhale deeply. And then under the arm. And I release all worry and obsessive concern related to this download. And exhale completely again. And inhale fully and deeply. And I release any anxiety related to letting it go. Inhale fully and deeply again. And exhale totally and completely. And then bringing the fingers to the bottom of the rib cage. The exact acupoint for that for both women and men is to put the fingers under the rib cage but directly beneath the nipple. And say, I release all hurt and sadness related to these traumas, or this the download. Exhale fully. And you might even add to it, as I, as I breathe out that hurt and sadness, I'm spewing it out into the stratospheres because I don't want it. And inhale deeply. And all the hurt and sadness connected with those downloads I'm spewing out. And inhaling deeply. And then bring your hand up flat on the, over the heart, on your chest, where, just covering the heart. And exhale fully and completely all fear. And then breathe love fully and deeply right straight into your heart. And as you breathe in that love, picture some scene that to you represents a purity of love. It might be something you felt towards someone or from someone or you witnessed it between others or it might be a scene that you've made up. If you haven't had people, if you haven't had people that were loving towards you, uh, you might make up a scene that would represent that. Let it be vivid and clear as you breathe love in deeply right into your heart. And exhale fear totally. And then bring your fingers up to the collarbone on one side or the other about where a button-down shirt collar would be. And just take a couple of more deep breaths in conclusion. Okay, then we would pause there. And I would ask the person to reflect on what they experienced while doing that. What memories or scenes came up related to that particular problem, that, that download what emotions they felt with it, where they felt them in their body, and what they feel now in contrast to what they felt before they did this. 
And then we want to evaluate on a 10-point scale how strong that download still is. If it was a 9 or a 10 before, what might it be now? A 7 or a 6 or a 5? Most of them would come down just two or three points at a time. And then we'd go back and, and repeat it again and again until we get it down to a zero. And so sometimes people can just do that genuinely just by reflecting on it, and they can tell when it's a zero. Sometimes they need somebody to muscle test them to get confirmation of it. Uh, if people do self-testing with uh, the muscle testing, I find half the time it's uh, inaccurate because the ego mind uh, rules more, you know, and wants to uh, uh, deceive us, wants us to think something's there when it's not, you know, or vice versa, or it's cleared when it's not. And so uh, if we don't have somebody to do the muscle testing, we need to just keep repeating it until we're pretty convinced we've gotten it all by the roots and gotten it cleared out. So that would be an example of how we might use one of the tools. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking us through that, Henry. Now, that's an adaptation of EFT. The emotional, yeah, the emotional freedom technique. And you've adapted it and changed it slightly based on your own experience working with people? Right. Adding the breathing, making the statements as to what emotion you release, because each of those emotions is what that particular acupressure point symbolizes as a negative one. Mm-hmm. And so I want to draw their attention. For example, if I have somebody doing it, they touch the eyebrow and they, see, they release all fear in the outside edge of the eye and I release all anger, resentment. Occasionally a person might say, oh my God, you know, I didn't realize how angry I felt about that. And it helps put them in touch with it sometimes more consciously. Other times it just helps access whatever's there in that meridian and is expressed in the body in that way. And then I've added the part below the ribs, which is not a part of EFT, because I think it's so important to deal with hurt, feelings of hurt and sadness. And most of the different meridians used for the EFT don't attend to that particular piece. Henry, I have to say, I feel so inspired, actually, by your presentation and the way you've put so many different things together, from quantum physics to your work as a psychotherapist, to your study of energy psychology, to your own self-healing work. Uh, The book, Your Power to Heal, includes tremendous self-assessment exercises, as well as the clearing technique you just taught us and several other clearing techniques. And I just here at the end want to thank you for your sincerity and for really pulling all of these strands together into what's really a workbook for people to engage in their own healing process if they're interested in and committed. As as I mentioned, it's challenging. You have to really want to get in there. And I, you have I guess to want to be free of your suffering. You do, exactly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's an important note to end on. How can you encourage people in terms of, yeah, you know, I want to be free of my suffering, but I'm also, I don't know if I want to work that hard exactly, really. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing might be, I could just show you a quick round of tapping. A person might come up and just uh, thinking of that, tap on the eyebrow and say, even if I think there's some benefit in hanging on to this problem or this suffering, outside edge of the eye, you know, and even if I think there's something that would get for me to, uh, or might protect me in some way to keep it, or under the eye, uh, even though I've gotten so used to it, I'm not sure what it would be, you know, if I let it go. How would my life be? Under the nose, tapping there. Uh, but I, one thing I know for sure, I sure don't enjoy the suffering. 
I don't like what it does to my body or to my life. And under the bottom lip, yeah, I'm just uh, really convinced. I don't like what it does to any aspect of my life. And then uh, on the collarbone, tapping there and say, that's why I'm just totally rethinking this whole premise. I would rather be free of the suffering than to hang on to it. I just don't see any benefit at all. And then just tap on the center and top of the head. And I'm doing all this because I love and accept myself. And I want to be at peace. And I want to be healthy and happy. All because I do love and accept myself. Even if I have difficulty even saying those words. Because sometimes people do. So that in itself can kind of help make a person more ready to do it. Very good. And that one is also spelled out in the book, too, to be used there, a, a variation on the EFT, I call it. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Henry Grayson. He's shared so much with us today. And if you're interested in learning more and seeing illustrations along with instructions step-by-step step to use these techniques and more, Henry's the author of a new book called Your Power to Heal. Resolving Psychological Barriers to Your Physical Health. Henry, thanks for your work, and thanks for being a guest on Insights at the Edge. Thank you. Well, it's been wonderful being with you, and thank you for uh, working with me on, on the book itself, and I've appreciated you and your staff, and the fact that all of you are interested in these kind of things. You know, it's very rewarding to me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Soundstreet.com. Many voices, one journey.